Hey there, it's Michelle Norris. I'm host of a podcast called Your Mama's Kitchen. When I travel, I'm usually looking for a way to find a taste of home when I'm not at home. And one of the things I love to do when I am at home is entertain. And Airbnb allows me to do that. When I was in California recently, I rented a house that had a great kitchen. And when we were sitting around the table, we're all thinking, we're in someone else's house. Someone could be in all of our homes as well. If you have a home, but you're not always at home, you have an Airbnb. Your home might be worth more than you think. Find out how much at airbnb.com slash host. Just before the last lockdown, I went up to Scotland and I was up there for two weeks, you know, by myself with my bivy tent and my hip flask <laughs> and, you know, a fire and a... And I was just bivying on beaches and... But there's something really nice about just going on a journey without necessarily an end. Welcome to episode 56 of the Adventure Podcast. This episode is the second full release of our mini-series for Kendall Mountain Festival in association with Yeti. We've partnered with KMF to put together four incredible stories of adventure and exploration. As I mentioned in the last episode, uh, we're bringing you conversations with two well-known individuals, Ben Saunders and Gilly MacArthur, as well as two relatively unsung heroes, mountaineer Matt Sharman and Hunter Workman who featured in episode 55. Before we jump into the chat with Gilly, I'd like to talk to you about the festival and how you've got the chance to delve into hours and hours of incredible content with a special adventure podcast discount. For obvious reasons, the entire festival is digital this year. Uh, There's an unbelievable wealth of films and interviews, uh, specialist sessions, etc. online And it's all available to watch and enjoy in a variety of different formats, depending on whether you like um, Access All Areas Pass or simply a one-off ticket for a single session. The content will also be up and online until the end of December, so you've got plenty of time to enjoy as much of it as you can. The nights are long and the days are gloomy, so what better way to get psyched for adventures than alongside one of the finest mountain festivals in the world? If you're up for it, you can get 20% off everything at the festival using the code ADVENTURE20 at the checkout. That's all capital letters and all one word. Head to KendallMountainFestival.com to get involved. Uh, Before I talk to you about Gilly, I'll just say that this series has been filmed rather than just audio recorded. So if you'd like to get up close and personal with these guests, then you can watch the conversations in full on the Yeti Basecamp on the Kendall website. Okay, Gilly MacArthur is a wild swimmer, rock climber, meditation expert and outdoor event organiser. As I half expected, this was a fairly emotional conversation. Gilly is an incredibly inspiring lady and is one of the most positive, kind and down-to-earth people I know. But she's not always had an easy ride. And as an important disclaimer, this episode features details of serious injury, death, and the loss of a baby. But what I found inspiring about talking with Gilly is how she manages complete and total uh, heart-wrenching catastrophe by taking control of her situation and consciously making choices. I found it empowering, uh, candid, and heartwarming, and I hope you do too. 
Finally, recording a series of sit-down interviews in front of a set of cameras in the middle of lockdown is not an easy task. KMF did a brilliant job of putting a venue together for this conversation, but largely due to Gilly and I talking for slightly longer than we should have, the stone-cutting warehouse next door kick into action at the end, but um, that's the reality of filming these things on the road. Okay, over to Gilly MacArthur. Can you begin by telling me who who you are and what you do as you see it? What does that mean to you? Who are you and what do you do? Um, ooh. Well, who am I? I am... Um, uh, my name's Gilly. I'm from Scotland. And I am a bit of a jack-of-all-trades, master of a few of them kind of person. Um, at the moment, I'm doing a lot of open water um, ice and winter swimming and a little bit of climbing. And I run a rock climbing festival for women and um, lots of other bits and bobs. So I try not to define myself too much with uh, who am I? Because quite often those things can get taken away from you. So it's a policy of mine to try not to define myself. At the moment, those are the things that I'm doing. I'm doing a bit of swimming, which is amazing. The water is getting colder, so I'm loving that. Uh, still trying to keep my rock climbing festival taking over a bit. Um, who else? What else do I do? I'm interested in uh, helping people with their mental health at the moment, so introducing people to cold water swimming for the first time for for mental well-being. Um, that's been a big challenge for a lot of people. And um, yeah, that's that's about it. That's a nice broad brushstroke of things. It is <laughs> at the moment, yeah. but it gets broader, right? You haven't always been that person, I guess. No, I definitely haven't always been that person. I definitely haven't always been that person. No, I haven't. I moved to the lakes six years ago from being in Bristol. I can work back or work forward. Where shall I work from? Work, work from forward, back forward? Or I don't know, forward, maybe back? work from, like, child. Oh, okay. Uh, so, I was born in the northeast of Scotland. Um, and I had a pretty uh, cool upbringing. It was quite... I wasn't feral, definitely not feral, but I had a nice um, creative upbringing. Uh, I was encouraged to, well, basically just play outside all the time. So um, growing up in Aberdeenshire was amazing, so out on the beaches and there's loads of castles. Aberdeenshire's got like the most castles per square metre than anyone else in the world or something. It's a nice stat for you. Um, and so every weekend we'd be out playing in the forests around these castles and playing on the beaches and so that's where I sort of started to get interested in the outdoors and encouraged to expand my imagination. My mum was really good at, it rains a lot you know in Scotland and uh, and so holidays were always um, spent outside in wellies but having to amuse ourselves while my mum and dad would drink whiskey and smoke cigarettes in this old showman's caravan that we stayed at on the west coast of Scotland. And so uh, 
so yeah, I had a, quite a nice a nice upbringing, which I think um, created gave me a mind which was able to sort of chop and change quite readily if I had to. So that sort of building resilience from an early age <laughs> was sort of drummed into me to be getting outside. So yeah, it was it was, it was cool when I was when I was little growing up. It was really nice. I had a happy childhood, I think. Nice. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And then where did you go as a young adult? Um, so I really, really, really wanted to do um, art at university. I wanted to go to art school. And my cousin had gone to art school. He's a bit older. And he, uh, but my mum and dad were like, if you do art, you'll never get a job and you'll never go into that profession, you know, because it's not really a profession, it's just like drawing. Uh, which is kind of weird because like my mum's quite artistic and my dad's really really mu uh, musical but um, I think as a job and as a vocation it was not really the done thing so I went to loads of open days at universities and basically chose the course that had the coolest people showing me around and so <laughs> I didn't really uh, I wasn't I mean I wasn't really a definitely not a straight A student, I was definitely a middle of the road, middle of the road kind of person. And um, so I looked at Edinburgh and Glasgow and Strathclyde and there was a course at Heriot Watt University but based at the art school in Edinburgh. And uh, I went there and this really nice guy called Dave showed us round, showed us round. And he had a big check shirt and a massive beard and I thought he is cool. And uh, and then so I decided that that's where I wanted to go. So I just went to that. Call. So I went to art school, but I studied a five-year degree in town and country planning, which is pretty boring. Um, I mean, it's not boring if you're into it, but it, it's boring if you want to be sort of wandering around being an artist, being all bohemian and barefooted. And I was learning economics and politics, and ugh, it was just not not for me. So it was a bit a bit of a gut, really, you know five years at uni and I was like looking over at all these people covered in paint and charcoal and being really cool and I was there <laughs> with the town planning lot. So on the day that I graduated I sort of burnt and got rid of my like notes and everyone else went off to do their qualifications and their extra qualifications and I uh, started working in a knitwear shop. <laughs> Much to my dad's disappointment. And where was it you studied? In Edinburgh. That was Edinburgh, uh -huh. yeah. Yeah, 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 in Edinburgh. Uh -huh. And that So I worked for a knitwear designer on the Royal Mile, which was fantastic. Yeah, that sounds great. It was ace. It was so great. It was such good fun listening to all the American tourists uh, coming down and their take on what... You know, you'd hear them chatting about what haggis was and stuff, and then they'd come into our shop, and I would just give them all these stories of, like, yeah, haggis is, like, this really rare animal which has got one leg shorter than the other to run round the hills, and they'd be like, really? And you'd be like, yeah. <laughs> and then the deli next door, they had, there was a jar, um, they had a jar on the counter, and it had lots of, you know, a, pic you know, a pickled egg in a jar, what yeah. that looks like. Um, they had loads of pickled eggs in these jars and these two women came in one day and they were like, Jean, did you see what was on that shelf? Those were pickled eyeballs. <laughs> and it was just all that kind of chat. It was like so busy. Edinburgh in the summer, so busy. They're all so busy. So I loved working there and I loved working with people. 
and it was just great crack and I never looked back. So I was never cut out to work in an office um, and I total respect people that can. I just tried, I had to do it for a year and I, I didn't, the year out that I did for my degree, you have to do two years and then a year out. And in my year out, um, I disliked it so much that I actually took a month and a half off and I went to, I went to Africa to look for a dinosaur. I went to the Congo Basin to look for a dinosaur and uh, did that for, a, did that for a, a month and a half. In, did you think that you were going to find the dinosaur? It was part of a small exhibition. There was me and ten guys and we were going to this part of Africa that uh, had in the 1940s and 50s had seen a small, looked like a little kind of brontosaurus type dinosaur called the Mukele Mbembe. And um, so I was, had to apply and got, got, cho- got selected to go on this expedition. So we went, flew into um, Douala or Yaoundé, and then from there we drove off into the rainforests to look up where the last known sighting of the Mokele Mbembe had been. And it was meant to be in these caves that were... Um, it was meant to be in these caves where there was a little village. And um, the guy who's an ex-SAS guy, had done a recce a few weeks before us arriving there. And he'd gone to the starting off point and where the caves and where this village was, was now a lot more, there was a lot more village and there were many more people. And so we thought, well, he, he made the call that look, there's not gonna be a dinosaur here anymore. And so we were all set to go. We'd all had our vaccinations and all that kind of stuff. And we were, we'd done our training. And I was like, how old was I? 1920 maybe and uh, with our SAS style hammocks and our machetes and everything so we still decided that we'd go to Africa and we'd go to this part and instead of looking for the dinosaur I mean we hoped that we might stumble across it somewhere we would go and uh, track in this untracked part of the rainforest that people hadn't been into before so it was cool though because it was when there was like there was no mobile phones you know, it was like back in, when did I go to university? So it was like 95, 96 maybe. So we didn't have, I remember writing letters to my mum home and I've still got those letters at home and it's funny, I can't believe my mum let me. I was like saying to my mum the other day, I was like, you let me go. You know, it's kind of crazy. She didn't know where it was. <laughs> no mobile phones. We had one of those big satellite phones and that was it. That's amazing. Yeah, that yeah. It, was good. it was a good crack. 19 <laughs> year old dinosaur hunter yeah <laughs> so what stopped you becoming a paleontologist or well I think I think now with hindsight isn't that the thing though it's like if I could go back now and the university days definitely formed me and they I didn't I liked the university side of it but I think I was wasted on the the course that I did you know it was still a nice experience but I think possibly I could have used those five years a bit more wisely, studying a degree I was interested in, or blah, blah, blah. But yeah, you know, but it's just one of those. Hindsight's it? great, isn't it? Exactly. If we had access to that, we'd all have won the lottery last week. Yeah, exactly, exactly, <laughs> yeah. So, yeah. So how did the knitwear shop come to an end? Uh, the knitwear shop I did for a couple of years, and I worked on Edinburgh, and then I worked over on the Isle of Skye, which was great. Uh, had an amazing time and then what did I do oh yeah and then I realised I was 
probably, unless I had my own shop, um, I probably needed to actually use a bit of my brain and a bit of my degree. So I got uh, recruited into working for Gap, the clothing brand, which are, at the time, it's hard to believe it now because they're closing all the shops, but at the time it was the biggest, uh, it was the biggest global brand re leader in the world for retail. And as a business, it had turnovers like 23 uh, billion dollars. It like totally bananas amounts of money. It's such a big company. And they wanted to expand the domestic market um, and uh, bring one of their, it's the, there's a brand in America called Old Navy, and they wanted to bring that to Britain. So they selected some of us to go from the international market and go and work in the domestic market. So me and another guy got chosen to go and work in the States and to learn about the business with the intention of bringing back those learnings to help open up the new part of the business in uh, Britain. So I had a couple of weeks in San Francisco and then I went to, I got placed in New York. I didn't know when I was, where I was going to be placed, but it just so happened that then they went, when they were like, there were six of us and they basically said, so, and Gil, you're going to be going to, and I was thinking, where are they going to put me to, you know, Vegas or wherever, and it was like, you're going to go to New York, and it was like, oh my gosh, this is like so amazing. And um, I was given, um, I mean, we were treated so well. I had a, like a, I had my own apartment, um, I was given an, a daily allowance. We were, we met the owners of Gap, the, the, you know, the heads of the company, and we went to, what's the Central Park for, for dinner, you know, with the owners of, of Gap, and we got tickets for the basketball and the baseball, and we had, I mean, it was just the most amazing experience, and I was working in a store on uh, 34th Street, and I lived in Manhattan, I lived in uh, Long Island, and um, we had 450 staff. I think the store took something like, it was taking about a million dollars a month in terms of staff. And I'd never worked, you know, I'm from the northeast of Scotland, I'd never worked with such an amazing, like, diverse workforce everything was different coming from my sleepy little edinburgh you know sort of shop to work in this amazing shop where people had guns you know and people had it was just amazing all of it was just totally bananas yeah and you speak <laughs> about it really passionately like you looking back fondly how you know when you hear this for the first time it's sort of outdoor upbringing knitwear shop dinosaur hunting new york for gap seems like a really big leap and change did it feel like that well i think when i was a kid i was doing i was an outdoorsy kind of person but i think right up until when i was still working at gap even with the knit wearing knitwear stuff i think i was still sort of on a path which was definitely um doing a more you know having a more normal you know, job and a more normal life and never really working in the outdoors, you know, and being so engaged with the outdoors as I am now. So those passions that I had for the outdoors were sort of fringe to still doing a very, you're on a career, have a, like a proper career path sort of thing. But I was always interested in the people side of things. So all of the stuff that I did 
when I was working in the States was all, I just loved the different people that I met and the different, you know, experiences I had with all of those, those people and, and hearing their stories and stuff. And that, I learned to scuba dive when I was over there because again, I still wanted to have that sort of click in with the outdoors. So learning to scuba dive in Long Island sounds quite an experience because the visibility is like less than you are to me. <laughs> so it's just, it was pretty cool learning in quite a, I mean, certainly when I was learning, it was, it was like the visibility wasn't that great. And yeah. then, uh, and then I went and did some, did some scuba diving down in Bonnier and Curacao and stuff with the guys that I worked with. So it was a really, it was a, it was a brilliant, 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 uh, time working at Gap, but there was a but, which is that big corporate companies in my experience are very good at, uh, keeping you in the family. So if you cut me in half, I was Gap, you know, I lived and worked and breathed the company and they were absolutely amazing at looking after us. And, uh, you know, everything that I did was for the company and I loved it. But it did, um, after I came back from the States, they, they wanted me to stay and I had signed a contract to stay and I, um, and I got back to the UK and I was a bit like, oh, what do I do now? Because it was sort of the job, the position that I would have had to go into, I was having to wait for that person to leave. So it was kind of dead man's shoes. So I was just kicking about and the experiences I'd had in New York and the people that I'd met and all of that stuff, I, I did get depressed because I realised that there was a bit more to life and I was coming back to, you know when people go travelling and then they come back and nothing's changed and it's kind of hard to fit back in again. I felt like that. I felt like I'd seen quite a lot of cool stuff. And much to the disappointment of, of Gap, uh, I asked for a year out, because they spent a lot of money on, you know, me being over there. And I, um, and I asked for a year off, um, because I just wanted to sort of find out what I was really wanting. Um, and I knew that I couldn't carry on with what I was doing. I w I'd sort of become a bit grey. I, I wasn't really as colourful as I had been before. So I was like, hmm. So I asked for a year out and they said, yes, but you definitely have to come back and we want you to still keep in touch. So I uh, took a year out took you off. And did? So I, uh, when I was growing up, my mum is a ski instructor. And so when I was small, I used to do skiing. And we used to go skiing. Learning to ski in Scotland's pretty tricky because it's a lot of bad conditions and sheep and heather and stuff. And I wanted to experience skiing, you know, snowboarding um, in a different, like kind of, you know, properly, you know. So I moved to, I wanted to keep off, so I went to the Alps and I moved to Chamonix and I didn't know how to snowboard, but I was going to learn to snowboard. So I, uh, so I got a job in a bar, in a little skate bar and I uh, borrowed a snowboard that was like way too big for me and I uh, met a bunch of amazing people and they took me under their wing and I... Uh, 
got really injured a lot because I didn't know what I was doing. I mean, they took me under their wing, but <laughs> they didn't teach me very much about it. I think my, the, I think I rode like the first, maybe like three months of the season with my bindings like set up completely the wrong way. Do you know what I mean? And it was like, no wonder you're still quite shit. <laughs> like, like, what's that set up? Um, so yeah, so that was my that was like my kind of crossroads, you know. I went there, I had an amazing time, um, and yeah, met some cool people. But the thing with living in well, for me, the thing with living in the Alps was that it's a quite a transient place, you know. You you learn, you have a very intense experience with people on the hill. Um, you're doing lots of amazing riding and stuff but you don't really get to know anyone's last name or what their life or their, you know, what, what really makes them tick. It's, all, it's, it's really deep, but it's also really superficial. And so after my year off, I knew I didn't want to go back to Gap. Um, and so I, but I knew I didn't want to stay in the Alps because unless I stayed there and found a proper job, I didn't want to be a barmaid forever. I mean, I flipping love bar. I love bar work. It's the best. You know, I'm a hopeless waitress, but if you're a barmaid, it's just brilliant. So I had a great time, but after a year, I was like, I'll come back and do something else. So I moved back to Bristol and I slept on my friend's sofa with all my snowboarding stuff. It was just a bit weird, <laughs> you know. With the stuff. Yeah, I just had every, well, I had like, yeah, so just, she said, look, you can stay with me. So I slept on her sofa and had all my snowboarding stuff and my bags and everything just behind her sofa. I basically put a pin in a map. I didn't know where I was going to move back to in the UK, but um, all my mates were sort of skateboarders and uh, just really lovely people from, from Bristol and Bath. And so they were like, well, come just move back because it's a cool place and it's a new place to live. So give that a go. And it was, it was cool. How old are you at this point, give or take? Uh, so I was 32. So it's quite old, like, you know, for people that are doing now, people that do seasons are what, like, they do it in their gap year or something. I don't even know. Yeah. It's kind of changed, because when I was in Chamonix, there were loads of people living in their vans in the Mont Blanc car park. You know, there was like van land and all of that's not allowed now. Um, there were loads of guys that were like trained electricians and so they were like tapping electricity off the lamps, you know, off the main, <laughs> off the main chamois lampposts and stuff. Really dodgy stuff and you can't, it's a shame, all of that, it's a shame you can't do that stuff anymore it sort of it exists elsewhere doesn't it but Chamonix, it does yeah exactly. the new Verbier and Zermatt and, exactly yeah. and Chamonix was still I mean it was still getting expensive but it wasn't like anywhere near and we caught the back end of when I went back recently I was like wow it's really posh here now you mm. know but um what was going yeah so and then I moved back to Bristol and then uh, just found a job a, quite a crap job but I did a of crap jobs and then I got a job working for a snowboarding company okay and that was cool yeah so diverse yeah so always been in I've kind of always done retail actually so and I've really 
I think I like the fast pace of it and the I mean it's all changed you know the global face of that kind of you know business or career is totally changing now but um, back then it was it was just yeah really enjoyed it so yeah. when did you get into climbing I got into climbing again late I got into climbing when I was living in Chamonix how I didn't kill myself I don't know because I was definitely one of those people that would be at the chains going shouting down to my b-layer so which way am I meant to tie this you know you know this you know when you're at the and you're like yeah. god I'm gonna walk away now because that person's just gonna plummet um so that's when I got into climbing but I got into climbing properly properly when I moved to Bristol because I um after sleeping with my mate's sofa I put a sign up at the local climbing wall saying uh, I'm looking for a room and it just so happened that my friend Tim Emmett, he's a climber, you know, don't you? Um, he and his girlfriend at the time were living in Bristol and they had a room in their house. So uh, Tim and Lana just split up and Lana said, Look, come and live in my house. So uh, that's when I first started climbing properly, well, climbing safely, climbing without going to, you know, kill myself. And that's when... Um, I started doing even, you know, really having a how can I make this world and this community part of my life properly, you know, and that and because Bristol is really near Pembroke, so I did a lot of my first climbs in Pembroke, and because I met basically I met at the time the UK's best climbers, and they took me under their wing, so I was climbing with Hazel and um, you know. Dave and uh, Timmy and um, you know Grant Facher and all that lot, and then I met Charlie through that. So my husband. So that's how going to Pembroke at the weekend and um, being in the vans and camping and just spending time on sea cliffs and them all teaching me about how to do this safely and not how I'd learnt in the Alps was amazing. Just loved it. Yeah. What was it that grabbed you? Do you think? Uh, I think the reason that I still love trad climbing as much as I did back then and I think the reason that it grabbed me so much was that it was really, uh, it's it's quite creative. It's a creative sport, sport, hobby, whatever you want to call it. Um, and I like the fact that you have to risk assess it yourself. So, and I've always liked being able to sort of find my own edge with stuff. And I think that ties back to when I was a kid, you know, and just being a bit free range and, you know, well, go over there and see what happens. And that's what I loved about climbing. And I hadn't experienced that. I'd sport climbed in the Alps. I hadn't tried climbed. So this was a whole new world of like, I have to assess my own risk. And, uh, and that's what I loved about it. You know, I really, I, th I thought that was really powerful to be in charge of your own safety and your own judgment about what is safe and what's not safe and your partner and having that relationship with your climbing partner to be like yeah I trust you and you're not going to be a dick and I trust this gear enough to progress past it to the next piece of gear and blah 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 and just that shared experience of being outside it's like it's such a cool sport for that but there are lots of other things, you know, swimming, you can do that as well, you know, like risking it. But it's that thing about us, us, us analysing our own risk that's really important 
to me. Are you quite a social creature? I'm actually... Uh, I would say that I am... I really like my own company. So I love... I, have, I struggle with more than... Uh, my number is like six. <laughs> so I work this out. Eight's too many. Four is nice, but like my sort of threshold is about six. If there's six people together, that's kind of cool. Any more than that, I find a bit draining. Um, and I love, I've just, in, just after, just before the last lockdown, I went up to Scotland and I was up there for two weeks, you know, by myself with my bivy tent and my hip flask <laughs> and, you know, a fire and, a, and I was just bivying on beaches and up in the mountains and just not going any, not with a plan, not with an objective to go from A to B, because why do you, you know, we miss that, I think. Why do we need, everyone's got an objective and oh, I've done the, you know, not saying that achieving's not important, but there's something really nice about just going on a journey without necessarily an end. And I think that even now, outdoor stuff has become so, oh God, everything's got to be a challenge or an, or an, or a, you know, the, you know, something, something, whatever it is. And it's like, how about you just go for a run without your watch and your, go, anyway. And that's what I, so am I a social person? Yes, but I also love, love being by myself. And it was funny when I was over on the West Coast just a few weeks ago, my brother, I spoke to my brother on the phone and he said, what are you up to, girl? And I said, well, I've just woken up. It's a beautiful morning. Um, and I've been sleeping in the, in the sand dunes here and I'm away off to go for a swim and make my coffee. And I got a phone, and he was like, all right, aye, 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 okay. And then I got a phone call from his partner a couple of hours later saying, Gilly, your brother's really worried about you. And it was just funny because it was like, I am having like literally the best time. And it's funny that like people, you know, it's like, no, I'm, I'm really good actually. <laughs> I'm having such a nice time. What did you do when you were away? I just kind of wondered and observed. And, uh. Hey there, it's Michelle Norris. I'm host of a podcast called Your Mama's Kitchen. When I travel, I'm usually looking for a way to find a taste of home when I'm not at home. And one of the things I love to do when I am at home is entertain. And Airbnb allows me to do that. When I was in California recently, I rented a house that had a great kitchen. And when we were sitting around the table, we're all thinking, we're in someone else's house. Someone could be in all of our homes as well. If you have a home, but you're not always at home, you have an Airbnb. Your home might be worth more than you think. Find out how much at airbnb.com slash host. You know. This might get... No, let's just go there. I think sometimes that can be terminology. Like, we use retreat. You know, I'm going on a retreat. Well, that makes it seem like you're... A, whether or not you're escaping something, it's why can't it just be what it is, which is a week in the sand dunes or two weeks in the sand dunes, right? Exactly. And why do we call it... It's funny because I have done a lot of... Um, I'm really interested in meditation and I'm really interested in the mind-body connection. So I've done a lot of silent meditations and I've done a lot of uh, retreats. And it's always a discussion that we 
or that sometimes comes back around it's like why do we call it a retreat because actually we're engaging we're engaging more we're becoming more present we're becoming more engaged in our bodies and in our minds to this present moment and to the world around us and it's almost like I understand why it's called a retreat but there is something that's not understood around because it's not the norm you know I love walking in the hills um, and round Kendall in uh, in bare feet because uh, it's a really nice way to feel the earth and to feel the mud between your toes and to feel when you're walking through the forest the beech nuts are quite crunchy on your feet and then when you the only bit that's bad about walking bare feet is holly because it's just really spiky and you've got to be really careful I know where all the holly bushes are in the forest because that's when you've got to be a bit more careful but you see people looking and going like you know you're weird I mean I, I get it it looks a bit odd but but that's just because now we're you know trained to that that should be odd that we have to wear trainers or you know or that going off on a journey without a map not without a map but without a plan of where you're going to be is like what you're just going for like you're just going to see where you want her to yeah you know why not but we almost don't I'm even conscious of putting communities in boxes personally, you know, mm. saying the outdoor community, I have issue with that. But as a, <laughs> as a community, I tend to find that outdoorsy people, we, we, we put these challenges on pedestals and we don't hold too much value in, you know, oh, so-and-so just went off on an adventure and it was amazing. And I think it just happened more than we maybe realize, but you know, Instagram, UK climbing, the BMC, we're all shouting about youngest, fastest, fittest girl to climb Everest backwards on mm-hmm. roller skates. Mm-hmm. And actually, how often are we celebrating normal, everyday, you know, adventure, in inverted commas? Yeah, I don't, it's, I think it's really interesting. And I think that there's a place for celebrating the big achievements. But I'm certainly, you know, I, maybe it's because I've never been at, you know, I'm, when I was at school, I was never, I was always like the last person to be, you know, picked when they did the picking and stuff. I was always like standing there, it'd be me and this other girl, Julie, and we'd be like, hmm, oh no. You, know, you could see everyone shuffling around going, oh, I don't want to pick them. So I've not ever been very like sporty in that way. So maybe I'm quite into like championing the sort of, the, the smaller adventures or the adventures which are, um, you know, just showing up and doing it or finding a way to get something out of it which isn't I'm never going to climb 980 do you know what I mean I'm going to get to my level of climbing and all that kind of stuff but it's interesting I, I think it's about I think that's why I get most inspired about seeing people just trying really hard you know and I think that's why I really love this the bits and bobs that I'm doing now around getting people like into water and stuff it's like it, it's about trying hard and being resilient to you know to get over what society says you should be doing you shouldn't be doing and stuff and I think some people need a goal though right you know it's like some people want to do all the Wainwrights and they want to do them all in you know a year or 
whatever. And I think and I'm and I think some of those challenges are completely amazing. People that run, you know, like Paul's run all the Wainwrights in a in a one hour. And there's definitely achievements that are amazing, but I quite like also hearing more about the you know, but they're not so newsworthy, are they? <laughs> and I realise it's deeply personal, but do you think it's healthy? What? The constant pushing for achievement. Uh, I think it's really interesting. I think that it is healthy if you're if you know what your mo- motivations are. You know, I see a lot of people running in the hills around here, and I tell you something: I don't know if they're having that nice a time. You know, really, and it's the same with if you climb at Malham, you know, or any of the, and you see people that are really having a shit old time, crying or having a rage because they've not done their project. And I think there's something about. If you want to enter into something, it's going to be hard, but don't bitch about it too hard that it's hard because it's a it's a privilege that you're able to do this. And that's the thing. I, I feel really strongly, and that's like that word, the outdoor community, that like, honestly, you're so lucky that you're able to engage in this because if you're having a crap time on the hills there's someone who would just be absolutely giving their eye teeth to be where you are in the rain, standing in the elements, lost, you know, and they can't be. So just be grateful that you're here, even if you're lost and you're having a crap time. So I think big challenges are important, but I think it's about making sure that your motivation is not that you're beating yourself up. And I think, I think, I think there are times when it's not necessarily needed but you need to have a focus to get you out of a hole that you've been in but I think it's important to know when to go okay that focus was now not very healthy and now we need to move on do you know what I mean yeah yeah are you goal driven Mm, I'm really fickle you see now fickle's meant to be quite a you know that's meant to be like a kind of bad I think it's kind of bad terminology. It's a bad word, yeah. Yeah, yeah. But I just like to see that I'm just <laughs> like, you know, kind of like to... I am goal-driven and I think I'm fickle, but I think fickle is quite a good thing because it means that you're always, like, interested in lots of different things, maybe. Um, I've definitely been goal-driven before to, um, you know, I got into running a couple of years ago and uh, I'd only run a mile in the January and then in the September I did... A thing up in Scotland, which is running around all the hilltops around in Glencoe, um, and uh, and it and and that was it was amazing because it was like I had the beginner's mind, so I quite like learning new things. So it 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 allows you to have a beginner's mind, and you learn from that experience, and you get loads out of it, and then just bounce to the next thing. And I have always been like that, you know. When I was little, I was like a butterfly. You know, it's like, oh, I'll do that now, and I'll do that now, and stuff. Yeah. Yeah. Do you think the outdoors is accessible? Uh, no, not really. I think it. I think the outdoors is the outdoors is accessible, as in there's parks everywhere and people can get outside, but it's then what you do in that space. And I think that this summer it's been really interesting because there's been loads of people coming down to the water. Um, and engaging with the outdoors in their way. So it's been really busy, 
and there's been lots of people that have had their like sort of ghetto blasters at the water's edge on the lake and they're leaving their litter and everything and there's been a lot of people saying oh they're not engaging you know with the outdoors they're not respecting the outdoors but maybe they are taking something from it um and just because they're not engaging in the outdoors like the outdoor community think they should be engaging with it it's like they are engaging with the outdoors and they're maybe getting something from which when they will hold on to for another time when they're having a bit of quiet reflection and stuff so you know accessibility is like there's a lot of different meaning for that do you know what I mean it's like do you have the right kit you know outdoor kit's expensive you do need to have a decent jacket blah 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 um how to engage with the outdoors is also different because it's like actually some people just can't you know they can't get into the outdoors but they can maybe sit in the park and take their shoes off and listen to the bird song and feel the wind on one side of their face and get more out of that experience than people that are climbing to the top of Everest genuinely and I've experienced that myself from at the end of a seven day or ten day retreat or engagement um, <laughs> you know having ridiculously powerful experiences and I'm doing absolutely nothing or you could say I'm doing everything you know and that's why I think it's about educating about how to engage because there's so much that's under our noses that we just don't see because we're on our phones you know (laughs) (laughs) yeah do you think that I mean, you've taken it upon yourself to be a champion for outdoor engagement, right? But yeah, well, men- maybe mental... Uh, I'm just... I really love, uh, and I do it with the, with the Trad Festival, and it's from my own direct experience that I think it's really important to understand that we are more... that we're um, stronger than we think that we are, and that society tells us that we are. And I think it's really important to, for everyone to understand that, that you have got a choice and you can choose to be grateful about things and that life is not fair, you know? Life's not fair, but Instagram makes us think that life's fair, right? And so do TV, like I don't have a TV, um, and I choose to engage with the news on a level which is okay for me um, but it's there's a great quote and it's uh, about watching the news uh, every day is like looking at the second hand and trying to tell the time and it's like you know even this week with everything that's been going on uh, with the elections and you can just see hit refresh hit refresh it and it's like listen it'll be what it'll be and you're just like do you know what I mean but- I'm getting I'm getting off, off subject there but like basically there's we have got a lot of control and we have forgotten that we have got control and if you're having a shit day look at what you're feeding into that shitness because it's probably that your instagram or your facebook or whatever is making you feel quite shit if it's making you feel quite shit delete those accounts stop following them turn your phone off for a day a week, get a different phone, you know, whatever. Um, and it's the same with friendships and it's the same with, you know, we are, and I, I for, for, 
for outdoor stuff, I just love when I see people giving something a go which they genuinely didn't think they could uh, do. And that's why the, the Trad Festival, it's for beginners, it's not for elite athletes, it's for people that basically driving to the festival was a huge deal for them because they suffer from anxiety or they have a challenge in that way or they couldn't get the time of work or they've got, you know, whatever. And it's the same with the, you know, the, the, the cold water swimming, you know. It's about just show up and give it a go and don't believe that you can't do it because society says that you can't. But it, and everything you're saying before is hugely relevant. I mean, I definitely want to talk about the Trap Festival and the swimming, but it, in a sense, I feel guilty, I don't know if I'm on my own with this, if I disengage from the news because I'm supposed to be up to date with current affairs, I'm supposed to know what's going on. Why? But that, yeah, and it never before in human history have we known so much about what's going on in real time. Mm-hmm. And that, I mean, even our parents, you know, they didn't know what was happening, they had to wait for the newspaper or tune into the, to the news at six o'clock. I mean, yeah. we can go on our phones right now and find out what yeah. Donald Trump's just said. I know. And that is... Maybe but it's that's unnecessary, right? I mean, yeah. that's. But I think that maybe, and I don't know, but maybe when I was like, because I'm 48 now, that maybe when um, when I was growing up, the, the climbing magazines, if you wanted to know the climbing news, you waited for the magazine to come out, and the rock star hero was in the front cover, and that was how you got your news. There wasn't UKC. You know, I sound like I'm your granny, okay? I'm not that old. <laughs> Don't look at me like that. <laughs> um, but um, I think it's just, we don't need to be in this heightened state of anxiety and fear all the time. And sadly, that's what, you know, the media, and that's what, what that's the state that we're in. Because that, you know, makes us want to buy things. You know, yeah. let's, you know, let's, you know, basically advertising is there to make us feel shit so that we buy things. And the news wants to, we're not, we're not told all the good things that have happened. We're only told to be in a sort of current state of fear. So it's not surprising that people are completely knackered and have terrible anxiety and bad depression and have mental health challenges and feel crap about themselves. And we're seeing more rise in that because it's completely fine to not know the nuances of what's happening in the American election. It's totally fine to not quite know what's happening on, you know, with Boris and with Brexit. It just, it, it's fine, you know. And the reason I, the reason I bring it up, because it might seem off topic is, and I mentioned this to you when we were talking before, you know, the outdoors is therapy, the outdoors has always been this place where we can go to be engaged with nature, engage with the natural world, disconnect, switch off, you know, all the buzzwords. But actually, is it now? Or are we feeling under pressure because, you know, Mina just climbed 9A? Or if I'm not walking the full length of the southwest coast path, does my dog walk have any value? Yeah. I don't know. I I think that there probably is a bit of that. I think that, you know, I think that I've... I've got a you know a, a, a watch which does you know counts my whatever. To be fair, I'm a bit of a luddite, so I actually don't have to use my watch apart from I just know that I can time how long I've been in the water for. Um, but I think that that's the thing. There's an awful lot of like genuinely a lot of people will not go for a run if they don't have their watch 
on. I panicked yesterday because mine was on 13%. See, really? Why though? Because I've got to log my run. But why? Because then how will everyone see how far I run? If why I... do you care? <laughs> but, it, but it's interesting, isn't it? Yeah. You know, and it's like, and also we have lost our connection to our own bodies by, this is, I know this from like when I was doing a lot of running, it's like, actually, I know when I'm blowing out my arse up a hill, I don't need my watch to be going, God, you're in the red zone. But, but we're looking at our watches before we're connecting with our own bodies. And that's the, that's the bit that I think is a shame. And I think that there is an awful lot of engagement in the outdoors, which isn't really engagement. We're just going outside, but we're kind of going for the, you know, the cool shot or the, you know, or we're trying to run faster and harder. And I was on Strava for a bit and I came off Strava because I realised that basically my runs were becoming something which was for everyone else and not for me. So I was like, okay, so I'm getting rid of Strava. I'm getting rid of Facebook. I really love Instagram because it's images and you can get a bit of banter and I, I lo- it's, it's nice and simple for me <laughs> as a little box. Um, but I just think there's so much to be learned about stripping away the devices and stuff, you know. I joined Strava two weeks ago. What? For the first time in years. Unjoined. Well, I think I'm gonna because it's <laughs> genuinely, it's been bad for my mental health. Mm-hmm. So now, and I, I am absolutely willing to admit this. So I look at Ben Saunders, Hamish Frost, you know, two people I know really well. They're so much faster than me. And it really upsets me. Mm-hmm. And also... Are they not like proper runners though? Yeah, really talented athletes. So you're athletes. comparing yourself to like yeah. talented athletes. I don't compare myself to the 20 people who are slower than me. Mm-hmm. And I also don't care that they're slower than me. Well, All you're I not quite about smug is, that they're slower than you. Well, I suppose I am a bit smug, mm. yeah, actually, yeah. Yeah, no, good point. I am a bit smug. Mm. And also, you know, it's the whole, like, like a thought. I, mean, I don't want to get too bogged down in this, but we need to see how many people click the kudos button. And then you're looking at, like, the running analysis, like, oh, God, uh-huh. I was a bit slow. Yeah. But, but, and, and, but it's just such, honestly, it's so, unless you're really clever and careful about how you use it, I genuinely don't think it's that I think it's a great tool but I think you have to be really careful about how you're using it because I think you can do a really lovely run there's a 10k run that I do 10k run that I do around here and I enjoy it so much more now not being on Strava because I know that I'll do it in whatever amount of time but I'm not looking at the squeeze between the, that bit and that bit and did I run that bit faster or slower, it's just what it is. And I'm genuinely much more engaged in the moment. You know, and even the best runners in the world are always gonna have someone nipping on their heels. And it's like one man's ceiling is another man's floor. For, for the whole of everything, there's always gonna be someone better and someone worse. So why, you know, so long as you know that you're making gains, you know, and a little bit of friendly competitiveness is great, you know? And it's, that's it's really And that's different, yeah. you know? It's like, but it's, but it, it, I think it's really, especially when the world is so much more competitive now anyway, you know? And I think that the outdoors is becoming more for everyone, but I think the actual, that sort of Nan Shepherd type engagement is sort of being drowned out by 
the, you know, the heated chop bags and the heated shoes and the fuck. You can just get you can you can basically be outside but still be in your house. Do you know what I mean? Yeah. <laughs> Yeah, no, you really can. I do sound like I'm from like 1750 or something. No, you don't. You're the solution. So. Whittle a a spoon and, you know, send you a message and a pigeon. Yeah, but what I find really reassuring is you do have a smartphone. You do have Instagram. Totally, yeah. But you've you've gone the journey, right? You've experienced the... Well, I have had to, you know, and I think that's the thing, is that I've, I've, I've chosen to, but I've also had to look at some I've had to look at things in a you know if 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 you have a crap thing that happens to you you have to look at how you are first and you have to look at how you want to engage and you have to choose what's feeding feeding you and what's harming you you know and I think that's if you if you have a if you have some tough times you've then got to look at how can I protect myself? And I think until you've had those tough times, you don't understand uh, that bit. And I think that's really important. And you've had those tough times, right? Yeah, yeah. But there, so in uh, so in 2012, um, my daughter was uh, bo- was stillborn at full term. So that was a that was a. The, the darkest place I've ever been for me and for my husband. Um, you know, when, and when you're expecting to have, um, you know, a, uh, a baby and you've had the baby shower and you've had all of those things because you're expecting, you know, it's going to be happening any day now. Um, and, then, uh, and then that gets stripped away. Your world collapses, you know, and it's it's the darkest place and it's the darkest place that 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 kind of no one's no no one no one understands you know and no one talks about it right because it's like there's 17 every day in britain there are 17 stillborn babies or babies that die either a month before or a month after they should be born so every day there's 17 people in the uk that are having that like massive shitstorm and they're in the deepest darkest hole and I was in that place we were in that place and so was my family and my friends had to you know sort of be there and scoop us up and when you're in that place you have to know where to go to and maybe it was because of my childhood um I think it was something that we that we both learned was how to be resilient and one of the things about being resilient is that you have to start to make choices. So right from the day that Elsie died, you know, I was getting lots of messages on Facebook saying, we're so sorry, blah, blah, blah. But then equally, it would pop up on my feed, someone else with a picture of like a baby, you know, the, so- the so- not sonar, the um, like baby photographs, like, oh, 12 weeks, da, 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 or other people having babies. And it was like, Fuck! This is like a relent. This is going to be a relentless slap in my face from now until well, people stop having babies. Well, that's not going to happen. So I had to make choices right from day one about how I was going to engage or not engage, what was going to feed and what was not going to feed my recovery and my 
journey out of the hole. And so um, those choices had to be made in the darkest hour and they had to be like bulletproof. And so that plus understanding that instead of saying in life, like loads of people say, oh, you know, typical me or it could only happen to me. And actually, why, why not be like, well, why not me, you know? Because life is amazing, but life can also be really unfair. No one said life was going to be fair. And we're not saying that some people have got it a lot easier because, you know what, they've maybe got it, looks like they've got it easier, but actually underneath the surface, maybe they're having an absolute horrific time, but they can't share it with anyone or they're having a big grief that no one knows about. So life is not fair, but life is also amazing. So we can try to look at the not fair bit, or we can look at, you know, and I feel really grateful for, for being pregnant, you know, because I've got lots of friends now who have never, are trying to have a baby, but they haven't experienced that. So, you know, I can look at what I lost, but I can also look at what I did get, and then I can also look at where it's led me to now, which is that I understand how to engage and to not engage with stuff. And that's not to look and go, I'm not going to look at that. It's about holding on to it gently, but not squeezing it too tight, you know. So, yeah. What were we talking about? <laughs> I just got well, distracted well, there. no, no. Yeah. I said you've had the tough times. Yeah. So, so. that was... Uh, and the other thing that happened... Um, and I was thinking about this just the other day because it popped up. Um, I was looking through some photographs. It popped up. Um, was uh, So I was in Utah. This is like six months after Elsie had died. So this was like the year from hell. Uh, like definitely um, Elsie had died in the February. And then we went to um, Utah in the October to go crack climbing. Um, and it was going to be our... Uh, lovely trip to, to, to get some sunshine on our backs and to be in the desert and there's something uh, you've been to you, yeah I love it there so so much there's something so special about um, the desert and uh, the energy there and it's just it's just such a magical place and anyway we were there and I um, was rock climbing I was doing a, a route which I have had wanted to do for a while and it was an amazing crack climb, and uh, I was beginning to climb again, and that's when I probably had, I, was, I had a healthy relationship with climbing to that point, um, probably in the first couple of months after Elsie died, I threw myself into climbing probably in an, in an unhealthy way. Um, but I was in Utah uh, crack climbing, and I had an accident, I, I slipped, I had a piece of gear by my head, pulled up to uh, put the rope in, hadn't pulled up enough rope, put the rope in my mouth, pulled up more, and I'd done all the hard climbing, it's like a 511 route, and I'd done all the hard climbing and it was now easing off onto this really easy bit, and um, my foot popped out of the crack, and all my gear held, but I fell really far because I had loads of rope out, and I hit a ledge, and I broke my back, and I um, knew I'd done something pretty full on because re really hurt, and I um, got lowered to the ground, and 
it was amazing. There was, I'd screamed quite loudly and there was loads of climbers came from all around and they made a little sort of bed of like ropes and duvet jackets and stuff and I lay on that and then um, I knew I'd done something pretty bad and I could feel underneath my, uh, on my chest here, um, something swelling up and I was like, oh no, but I could wiggle my toes so I knew I was okay for now. And uh, it's the only time in my life, uh, it is the only time in my life that I've been genu genuinely scared because I, the year before my best friend had died in a climbing accident in Pembroke and he had died of internal bleeding and um, he thought he was totally fine um, and it was just going to be a rudimentary like go to hospital and get patched up and he'd be fine. And he just never, the doctor just came out and said, no, he's gone. And how can he, how can he, how can he be dead? Because he was fine, you know? He shouldn't, like, this is, you've got the wrong person, you know? And I knew that I had, something was going on here. And I thought, I've got an internal bleeding like he had. And maybe this is, maybe this is it, you know? I'm going to get sad now. <laughs> um, just because, you know, you hear people and they go, oh, maybe, yeah, I don't know. Like, maybe that's how people do just die. So they just have a, they just go, oh, I wasn't expecting it. And then they just were dead. Anyway, so I, I, I had this lump and I thought, crikey, this is, maybe this is, a, may, I was kind of now I wasn't bothered about my back. I was like more thinking that if this is how I'm going to die. This is going to be like quite full on. So, um, and I was, and I was not sure, but then, after a while, I was like, I was lying on the on all these ropes and everything, and I was like, well, if I can just focus on how I am right now, and how I am right now feels I'm fine, and I can still smile, and I'm still breathing, and I can still wiggle my toes. So wiggle my toes, breathing, and by this point, there were loads of other people coming around, and it was and it was it was like just keeping focused on being like, okay, this is fine, this is fine, and it was amazing because. I then got taken to this, uh, they took me to the local hospital and realised they needed to move me to a different state, so they moved me to Colorado and, uh, and I was in the ambulance for four hours on this head stretcher board thing and I was like, okay, and I was still kind of worried but I was like, no, Gilly, it's going to be alright, it's going to be alright. And even in that moment of thinking that in that, in, that, in that slice of moment when I thought, maybe I am going to die, and looking at the worry on Charlie's face and looking at the sheriff guy, thinking, no, nah, I'm not, I'm, I'm going to be okay, I'm going to be okay. It was about framing it to go, this is an experience and I'm going to come back and climb here again. I don't want this experience now that I'm having, if I get through it, to mean that I can't come back to this place or stop climbing, because I love coming here and I love climbing. So even right from when that shitstorm was happening, it was like, how can I make this into a positive thing? So, yeah. So those have been two, those have been two sort of fairly major things um, that have maybe taught me a bit more about being resilient and about being uh, understanding of other people's situations and how everyone has a bit of a struggle. And actually, if we can all just be a bit kinder, uh, 
to each other and understand each other a bit more and be a bit more authentic and a bit more honest, then the world would be a bit of a happier place. But unfortunately, it's not like that so much. But isn't it harrowing? I got a bit emotional then. Isn't it (laughs) harrowing that we have to go through something that traumatic, profoundly devastating, in order to come to that realisation? Because we don't want everyone to have to experience it, right? Well, I don't... I don't know if it's I don't I don't know actually. I I would obviously want things to be different. But I also it is that thing of like life's hard, you know, and life's unfair. And actually there's a lot of people that have gone through really tough times and they would like not like those tough they would still like those tough times to have happened from what they've learned from it. You know, I remember speaking to John um, Ellison from Climbers Against Cancer and we had coffee a couple of weeks before he died and he said that he, he really almost thanked the cancer because it had given them this amazing experience and he'd had this incredible experience building up this community and meeting these people and having an engagement with people that he just wouldn't have had. You know, obviously he would have liked to have not had cancer but you know there's a learning in having a terrible time and it's whether you can you know everyone can learn to 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 have that choice we've all got a choice we do have a choice even if you don't think that you've got a choice there's tiny little things that you can do to make a difference to have a bit more of a, a choice and yeah it is sad I mean it'd be amazing if everyone could just have insights without having to you know sail through a shitstorm but you just tuck the oars in and put the sail down and just go for the ride, you know? The storm will get better. It'll calm down and then you can just put your sail up again. Yeah. So how did you go about that recovery? Um, from that time? Because that's three things, right? The best friend. I mean, yeah. It's, yeah, the three yeah. things to um, overcome was to do those things, to just be grateful for the things that you have, you know? It's like, had some, you know, from all of those experiences, there's learnings which are positive ones. And shining the spotlight on the positive ones. I did a lot of meditation. I had a friend who's a Buddhist and she taught me the basic elements of meditation. And from that, it really piqued my interest and I started to doing I started doing a lot more meditation and I sort of did a, a reassessment you know on on life on the people that I gave energy to and the people that I uh, wanted to spend more time around and um, making time for myself and uh, making time for things that really fired me up and made me happy and that's all you can do and just take each day as it comes you know and also probably the other thing which I did do and I guess it is another 
it's another sort of resilience tactic is to not listen to the narrative around what it should be like, right? So, you know, I remember my friend saying to me, oh gosh, I'm so sorry for the, I'm so sorry for the experience that you've had, you know, and parental loss is the worst loss. And I remember thinking, I remember thinking, don't tell me that because I don't need you to tell me that it's the worst because I'm already there. What I need is I need hope, you know. And that and and that was, and it's the same with my back. The the doctor that I had, he was great. He he sat by my bed and he was in this wheelchair. He was in my wheelchair, and he was rocking back and forth. He had this Patagonia jacket on. He was rocking back and forth, and he was like, "You'll be fine. You'll be fine." And I remember thinking, this guy's like the coolest doctor ever he's just sitting there in my wheelchair just telling me I'm going to be fine and it was like but you just needed to have the the focus for the for the good stuff and I think not listening to the narrative on how it should be is really important language is really important so when people say oh I've been di you know I've been diagnosed with this condition and my blah it's like well don't own it just call it the you know, don't call it my cancer. Just call it the cancer, because you know, don't 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 own it like it's my handbag. You know, you want to you want to get rid of it. So don't. So stuff to do with language, you know, is really important. And yeah, just not listening to the narrative on how it will be. Oh well, after three months, you're still not going to be able to walk, and you'll be in your brace. And after six months, you're going to be da da da. It's like yeah, or maybe I might be able to be there by six months you know it's also amazing how much damage people can do without realizing following totally. trauma right yeah totally and tell you yeah you know oh well when I had that then da, da, da. well great but you're not me and they tell you what you are and they tell you <laughs> what you need to do about it totally and it often turns out it's the opposite exactly exactly and I think that's the thing it's like just be careful being really mindful of that stuff and what's coming in and then on the days when it was too much it was like no I'm gonna I'm choosing to have a big cry today because I want to I want to do this and that's not because that doesn't mean I'm not getting better that just means I'm just having a day because I want to do this you know might be a sign that you are maybe who knows exactly depends on the day right exactly exactly yeah so did you climb in Utah again I did I went back the following year I went back the following year and I went back and I climbed uh, and I crack climbed again, led. And it was really quite, uh, it was pretty emotional, you know. Uh, I haven't gone back to do that route and I'm good with, I'm fine with that. Yeah, do you need I, to? So I don't need to, I don't need to. Um, yeah, I don't need to. I think I would quite like to go back and do it. Um, I could see it from the see it from the car park well like from the road I was like oh, I think it's over there somewhere um but I went back and climbed you know and 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 I had an amazing time went back and like drove past the hospital and stuff in Monticello but uh you know it, I I absolutely wanted to not have it that climbing or that climbing in Utah would be uh, like off limits you know just like I didn't want to have you know people that are 
seeing people that are pregnant being off limits because it's like there's just that's how the life is you know you're all gonna have you know it's just how it is yeah so yeah but yeah I've been back and I'd love to go back again it's just such a magic place yeah oh god there's so many things I want to talk about but it's not <laughs> gonna work there's not enough time in the day um I think it would be interesting to talk about how I really want to know how you ended up doing all of the swimming because the combination of the kind of meditation, the recovery, mm-hmm. the outdoors, this therapy, which is not something I think you're going to necessarily align with, but yeah, how did you get there? And so I moved from uh, lived in was living in Bristol, and then Charlie and I realised that we were spending a lot of time up here in the north of England, and we were spending a lot more time in the hills and driving up and down the UK at the weekends was just, you know, it's not like very far, but it's far enough. And so we made the choice about six years ago to move here and we rented for a year and just to give it a try. And then on about the third day up here, our neighbours said, oh, well, you know, it took us about a year to get into it and you know, it rains a lot, and, da, 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 and, you know, give it time, give it time. And we were like, well, we were already sold. Like, we were we were already, like, thinking, right, we need to sell our house in Bristol and move up here, you know? And um, and and the rest is history. So we, we moved here, and uh, it was quite different from living in a big city to living in Kendall. It's small. You need to take a bag of time with you everywhere you go. And that's nice, you know, like the lady in the supermarket chats to you and then you see her working on a Saturday at the hairdresser and you can see sheep from the car park at the supermarket. And you just need more time for stuff, but everyone's more friendly and it's still, Kendall's great because it's still like a working town. It's not right in the, in the national park and stuff. And um, you can still get your hit down to London or Manchester for a jazz club or something. And um, but yeah, and I started doing swimming because it rains a fair bit, and I was wanting to still be able to do stuff outside. Running takes quite a lot of time, and there's so many bodies of water up here. You know, there's 16, 18 lakes, and just millions of little tarns and stuff. So I thought I'd like to give this a go, and um, yeah, it's been. It's been an amazing journey. I t- the first time I went, so I've I'm, I've never been a competitive swimmer, but I've always been like thrown in the sea when I was small and stuff, and uh, swimming in lochs and rivers up in in Scotland. So I was engaged to try and get into the the lakes and stuff up here. And the first time I went to Windermere, I met up with a couple of women. And they were just in little swimming costumes. And they were a bit older. They were maybe in their 60s. And I had my surfing wetsuit on, which is, like, ridiculous for swimming in. Like, you can't swim in a surfing wetsuit. And uh, and I thought it was the most hardcore thing I'd ever seen, was these women. I was expecting them to put goose fat on or something. <laughs> and I was like, they're going in with just their swimming costumes. They're going to die. Got in the water, got really cold because... And I couldn't swim, you know, because I was wearing this wetsuit. And got out, and they were like, listen, you know, next time, just don't wear the wetsuit. And I was like, well, that's easy for you to say. And, um, and then the next time I went, I didn't wear the wetsuit and never looked back. 
and since then I've really got into it. So I don't swim that much in the summer, but I do really love to swim in the winter. It's life-changing. And again, it's that thing of like pushing the edge and seeing what's possible and then giving it a little, oh, that might be all right. And yeah. I believe there's a preconception that it's type two fun, you know, where it's fun afterwards. Is that the case? Um, it is type one and a half fun. And it can also be type one fun. Um, quite a lot of things are type two fun, you know. Maybe not snowboarding, but yeah. Um, it's definitely in enjoyable when you're doing it as well. And I think the more that you do it, the more that you're pushing it towards type one fun. So, um, but what you have to do is break the back of it. It's exactly the same as falling and climbing. So falling and climbing is scary and no one wants to do it. But the more that you do it, the more that you understand that you can do it and the more it becomes something which is natural and the more you then enjoy your climbing. And it's the same as cold water swimming. It is, honestly. So bear with me with this. <laughs> I'm going into full hippie mode and I'm, it, not, I'm not embarrassed. Go. So can you describe to me, mm -hmm. I'm almost going to close my eyes while you do it, mm -hmm. what it's like to go into a body of water in winter mm -hmm. when there's snow on the ground? You know, what does it feel like? What does it smell like? What does it look like? Yeah. What is it? So, yeah, you get to the tarn and um, generally you'll, I try to stay kind of quite warm beforehand. The warmer that you are before you go into the water, the better, because uh, it just makes it a lot more pleasant. Kick off your shoes, take your, take your uh, warm woolly sweater off. And what I'm doing is basically, as I'm, I can feel my brain change. The reason why people find getting into cold water um, shocking and hard is because maybe their mental state isn't isn't prepared for it yet. Uh, and again, it's much like sort of climbing in, in that regard. And so when I'm taking off my clothes um, to go for the swim, I'm really engaged with what's going to happen next. And I can almost feel my brain switching over into you were in the car and you were doing your thing and now, well, now you're at the water's edge and this is what you're doing now. So there's a real switch that happens and you can feel, you know, the, the, hard, um, the hard shore, lake shore on the soles of your feet and then you can see your breath uh, coming out of your mouth and as you walk into the water, you can start to feel like the, um, the ice, like touching the sides of your legs and it's quite sharp, ice is quite sharp. Thin ice is quite sharp. Um, and as you get down to about your knees, you're then having to start to think about breathing. And basically, it's a really super uh, gentle process. Um, and as you go down further into the water, it is a sharp pain that you're feeling, but it's not a pain which is uncomfortable because the more that you do it, the more that you embrace it, and the more that you fight against it, the harder it is. So there is a beautiful letting go. And once you decide that you're going to get fully submerged up to your neck, you just gently breathe out. And by holding your breath, you're telling your brain that there's something to be scared about. But if you breathe out 
and let go and relax, then you can get into the water and it's and it's fine. And you only need about four or five times to go in in a couple of weeks in cold water to reduce your cold water shock. And your cold water shock is when you're breathing like that. And you only need to go four or five times to reduce your cold water shock reaction. And then you can start to um, enjoy the experience. And after about two or three minutes, your heartbeat starts to calm down. And then you're in the, in the cold. And I don't swim long distances um, in ice because I'll cut an ice channel. And then um, it's tricky to cut an ice channel when you're swimming in it as well, because you're swimming and then you're having to take an ax and you're bashing the ax in the ice. And it's, it's hard to get to a point where you can still be staying warm. So I've got a few techniques that I'm going to be trying this winter for that. But um, once you've cut the ice channel and you're swimming in it, um, you can go back and forth for 10 or 15 minutes and then get out. And then if I'm swimming in a body of water that's not iced over, then it's just about staying in for as long as you feel comfortable. And different days are different. But the, the physical benefits are amazing and the mental health benefits are, are really profound. You know, are really profound. Can you talk about both of those? Uh, the mental benefits are that you're stressing your body and your mind in a way which is doing something which is counterintuitive to what society and what other people think. And so you've achieved something which people think is unbelievable. And I see that over and over again with all the people that I take swimming for the very first time. There's a real joy on their faces that they've done something that is just looks ridiculous. It's snowing. There's We're getting into water which is six or seven or five degrees or ice and they're, they're they're getting into it and that's what's really completely incredible so that's the mental side of it is that you're challenging yourself um, and the physical side is that you're basically challenging your immune system you're focusing um, your breath you're doing a little bit of breath work and you're um, releasing tons of serotonin dopamine happy hormones into your body. It's now been proven. There's lots of research about it being good for dementia. It's really amazing for, um, anecdotally, the science is still catching up, but it's really amazing for depression and anxiety. So it's amazing. Cool. Um, so, as people can probably hear, <laughs> we got the this. stone cutters <laughs> next door have started up again. So, I'm gonna. I mean, what feels very obvious to me is we're gonna have to do round two at some point in the future. I'm gonna have to take you swimming. Yeah, we could do that. <laughs> can we oh, do we, that? Let's do that. We could do a let's live. Do a while, yeah. Well, we'll do a swimming podcast. Okay, I like that. Okay, cool. Okay, I have two questions which I'm gonna ask you despite the noise. Do it, and I'll talk, ask talk everybody. Widely. Okay. Okay. Um, what scares you? Um, for me personally, nothing scares me, but um, I have a worry that what scares me on a, on a wider context is people not understanding that they have choices. And I think that that does scare me. I think that people not understanding that 
they can take risks and there are choices that they can make to make themselves happier and I think that's something I'm seeing that more and more people becoming more into their shells and into themselves and I think that that's something that does worry me or scare me a bit you know that people are just losing their own understanding of themselves and who they are that that scares me a bit um yeah what gives you hope Ooh, what gives me hope? Uh, what gives me hope uh, is people trying to change themselves. Um, be that doing something differently or wanting to improve the world, the little world that they live in. You know, forget all looking at what's going on over there. Just if you can just do a little bit of good stuff in your own little community. And I love seeing that. Um, and people being a bit more loving and kind. Those things that I see on a day-to-day basis, people just sharing a smile, that gives me hope. You know, people should smile more. <laughs> gives yeah, me hope. Yeah. Agreed. <laughs> yeah. Okay, and if, yeah. sorry, very finally, short and sweet, if people want to learn more about cold water swimming, cold weather swimming, yes. where, where do they go? Um, there's loads of resources online now. There's, so much out there now to do with the benefits of cold water swimming and ice swimming for mental well-being just google it or um there's a really amazing swimming magazine called outdoor swimmer it's got loads of resources on there outdoor swimming society as well but yeah just google it find a group get into it there's groups across the world now it's it's enormous it's growing it's it's huge and i'm always banging on about it on Instagram. You can't chat me up about it. So it's getting into my season now, so I'm psyched. Nice. Yeah. Thanks very much. Thank you very much too. Thanks for listening. For more information, visit theadventurepodcast.co.uk. The podcast is hosted by Matt Pycroft and produced and distributed by Pip Saunders, Alex Hall and Acast. If you'd like to get in touch, you can email us at info at theadventurepodcast.co.uk and please do leave us a review on iTunes. They make the world of difference um, and you can keep in touch on Instagram at theadventurepodcast.